Hey, lovers and friends, if you've been listening for a while, you may recognize my voice as lead producer and sister to Shan, Lauren Morrison. I'm jumping on here to let you know that you are about to experience a very special episode of Lovers and Friends. What makes it so special? Well, we're deviating from our regular format so that you can learn more about Shan. And who better to tell you about Shan than, well, her mother, Olivia Boudram, our mother, actually. Olivia is going to be featured throughout the episode and sounds like this. The the part that surprised me was the fact that she said that she was obsessed, obsessed with um, sex. That that surprised me. I feel like I don't even know. Did I did she live with us? (laughs) And you're also going to be hearing from me throughout the episode. And well, you know what I sound like. So sit back and enjoy Storytime with Shan Boudram. Lovers and friends. Hi there, lovers and friends, and welcome to a very special edition episode of Lovers and Friends, the podcast with me, your host, Chan Boudram. I am a sexologist and intimacy educator who has been working as a public-facing educator for the past 15 years. I have done my work everywhere from YouTube to Netflix, from Playboy to The View, and this podcast is an opportunity for me to bring everything together, my educational background in psychology, in sexology, and in journalism, as well as my passion for all three areas of intimacy, which is sex, relationships, and attachment. Here on this podcast, we have a dynamic, multifaceted conversation, but today we're going to do things, like I said, a little bit differently. I want to tell you a story. In order to answer a question that I get asked all of the time and have to answer it in a super short way, but the joy of podcast is that it's like good sex. We get to take our time. We get to really dive into this layer by layer. We get to go through this in phases. And so I want to have great sex with you. So I'm about to answer the question that I get asked more than any other question on the planet. Are you ready to hear it? How did you get into the work that you do? Which of course is a polite way of saying, when and how the fuck did you come to decide that you were going to be a sex expert? And to that question, I always answer as follows. I say, A lot of people talk about purpose like it's something that you're supposed to find as you get older. But for me, my purpose was something I had to rediscover from my younger years. I had a very public passion for touch in the body up until age seven, and then I rediscovered that passion in a much more bold and channeled way at age 19. Essentially, when I was growing up, I was a very physical and sexual person to the point that my mom banned my Barbies from being naked. Again, you know what? I understand that she had curiosity, but I would put it down to what child doesn't. They just have that kind of curiosity about their body. But was it something that she talked about all the time? I would not say yes. No, she did not. She had a million other things to talk about and think about. I then decided that my sexuality was not a positive thing. And then when I got into my teen years and hormones got involved, I stopped having a choice in the matter. But because I didn't have a positive idea about my sexuality, and I did definitely didn't have any positive sex education, that led me to a very negative teen sex life. And I continued on in my teen years up until the age of 19, having multiple partners, zero orgasms, a lack of self-esteem, and a lack of joy and pleasure overall. So I thought to myself, it's time to hit the pause button. And I'm going to decide this moment that either A, everybody was right, and this is a negative thing that I should suppress as much as possible and try much harder to suppress, or B, this is a beautiful thing, but I just haven't been interacting with it in a healthy way. 
So I gave myself a shot at B and I got a library card and I read every book possible in the Pickering Town Center Library about sex and sexuality. And I came out of that and I thought to myself, wow, there is such great, incredible and life-changing information in these texts, but they're dry as fuck. The information was delivered in a boring way. In essence, I found sex ed to be very similar to bad sex. It was predictable and monotonous and faceless and a lot of the times unengaging. So I wanted to be the person who made sex education sell. Basically, I wanted to take the salaciousness and the sexiness and the drama and the excitement that the fiction world had. And then I wanted to combine that with the life-changing information, the facts and the conversation starters that the nonfiction world had. And that is how I started my career at age 19 years old. So that is the answer that if you have listened to me on any other podcast, you could have answered for me. Um, Jared refers to that as Shambudi's greatest hits. It's just a story that he's heard a billion times before. But I wanted to really color in the details of the early part of my life because I do think that it is massively important to reconnect with your child or with your inner child and talk to them and listen to them and understand them a little bit more. And for me, understanding that part of myself is also understanding my purpose. So in this episode, I want to tell you about Shannon Teresa Boudram from ages four to seven years old, which I would describe as extremely formative years when it came to my career my approach to my career, and my reconciliation with my career in my teen years. So Lil Shannon was, like I said, very physical. And yes, by that, I partially mean sexual. But broad of that, I was just a very touchy and affectionate and body positive person. For as long as I can remember, I liked seeing the human body naked. It made me feel comfortable because I understood that this was assurance that people trusted me and felt close to me. And I liked that feeling. I remember seeing my grandma naked, my parents, and even one of my aunts. And not because they were cringy, but because, like I said, I found them comforting. No, I have no recollection of that. I didn't know that maybe she was lurking in the in the doorways or something. And like, like just like getting ready to see you naked or something i i had no recollect i have no recollection of that and i'm not saying it didn't happen i'm saying i just don't remember it it certainly wasn't something that was an obsessive behavior that i had to um monitor her or sort of like you know tell her that um you know maybe that's not a good idea When I say that Lil Shambudi was very touchy and affectionate, I mean that physical touch was and continues to be my love language. It felt natural and freeing to show someone or something that I cared for them by using my body. So I did whenever I could. So in a nutshell, Lil Shambudi, Lil Shan Teresa Boudram was a child who knew that the human body was a beautiful, beautiful thing. She knew that touch was integral to intimate relationships and very healing to individuals. She also knew that 
We are sexual beings and our sexual self is an inherent part of ourself. It doesn't need to be separated. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that I needed important lessons on understanding other people's boundaries. Shan always wanted to sleep in my bed. And then I came up with a rule. I was like, if you're going to sleep in my bed, you have to wear pants. Also, in addition, understanding age appropriateness as it came with sexual expression. But I also think that it was very beautiful that I had the inclination that sexual expression was a part of my human expression. So that's the version of me that I was. But like I said, from age eight to 18, I became someone very different. And I want to tell you four stories that I think took me off of my path. And I say take me off of my path with a grain of salt because I do believe that that decade of disassociation was also very integral to my career because it allowed me to relate to many people who went through the exact same experience of suppression and of self-suppression. Number two, when I did finally get back into this space and back to re-acknowledging that truth from my childhood, I had so much more fire in me because I felt angry for the years that I'd lost, which I think helped me make up for lost time. So like I said, there's four stories in particular that I want to share today. We're going to call them Pillows... Barbies, Lewd, and Sweet Baby Jesus. Before we really dive into this, let's show some love for our sponsors. All right, let's do this. Lewd. So I'm like somewhere between five and seven years old, and I love my sister. I love my family. I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my sister, but I also love to bother my sister who doesn't like to express love through physical affection. Never has, still to this day does not. Like, or she was just very affectionate. She was very touchy feely. I was on the other side of the spectrum where I just didn't really like a lot of physical touch period from anybody. I'm not that PDA person. Like physical touch is not high on my priority list. I know it's there for Shan, um, but that would often cause like disconnects or fights between her and I growing up because she always wanted more affection from me than I ever want or was ever comfortable to give or she wanted to be more open about things than I was ever comfortable being open with. My dad actually does this and still does this to an extent where he um, shows affection through annoying people, through unwanted physical touch that is done in a kind of bullyish prankster way, like a nuggie or a wet willy and, or, you know, hugging you and crushing your bones, like those types of, of acts of affection or physicality. And my dad did that to me when I was a kid. And I think that I also do that to Jared a lot now in my adult years, but specifically towards my sister who didn't want this type of affection and attention. I would do it a lot towards her. Also, mind you, not because I just wanted to bother her, but in general, I love my sister and I love hugging her. And even to this day, I'm the one who initiates them and I enjoy them. But I remember specifically, again, being somewhere from five to seven years old and I was chasing my sister around the house and I was trying to hug her and trying to kiss her on the cheek. And then she was like slamming doors and it was like ramping up. And then I started to do things like blowing her a kiss when I couldn't reach her. Um, Or I would like... You know, sh- you know, shrug my shoulders at her. I know what I would do. I would lick my lips. <laughs> she would do that creepy thing where she would like 
lick her lip at me, like her top lip, like her tongue would curve and it would go over the top lip and she would stare me dead in my face. And I would be like, ugh. And my sister, rightfully so, you know, told my mom, like, she's bothering me and she is doing things that are weird and creepy. And my mom sat me down and was like, you are being lewd. Stop being lewd. Lewd. It's funny, you know, when I heard that word, I had to stop and think, do I use that kind of language? Oh, no, mom absolutely used the word lewd. I don't wouldn't know the word lewd. I don't know where that would come into my vocabulary. But I remember that that was a name that mom gave it. And I just held on to it. To be lewd is to be crude and offensive in a sexual way. Now I want it to be funny and I want it to be affectionate, but I didn't want to be lewd. I knew that was a bad word and I didn't want to be a bad person. Um, so I was like, I don't like the feeling of being called that. But because my sister, who was very smart, um, realized I didn't like to be called that word, my sister stood then started calling me lewd a lot. Mom, Shannon's being lewd again. And I got really deeply hurt by that. And I slammed myself in my bedroom and I remember grabbing a sticky pad and I wrote on it, the lewd one wants to be left alone. And I put it on my room door. And I vividly remember that because it was the first time that I thought to myself, maybe the way that I want to love pushes the people that I love away from me. That was kind of a point of strife between her and I on just like me wanting to separate and her being like physically wanting to be closer to me. The real moral to the story is, hey, stop being fucking weird. Like there's a balance between being loving um, and just being inappropriate. Also too, boundaries and consents are really important. Pillows, okay. <laughs> I might actually cut this whole episode now that I'm saying these weird things out loud. They're kind of embarrassing, but here we go. So Jalen was my best friend um, because her mother was our babysitter. And Jalen had a sister who was the exact same age as Lauren. We would go over there and we would be babysat by them, but we just adored their house. We enjoyed the environment that we had over there. And we connected, you know, not just as people who had to hang out because that was what the payment arrangement was, but we enjoyed hanging out. So I remember one time being invited over to their house to sleep over. And of course, you're a kid. I loved sleepovers. And I don't remember what I watched or how this got in my head. But Jalen and I were up, you know, past the point that we were supposed to be. We were put to bed and we were like, fuck no, we're staying up, which every kid is going to sleep over. But here's the thing maybe every kid doesn't do. And again, I was probably in the range of grade one, so maybe like six to seven years old at this point. And... I said to Jalen, because we both had our pillows and our pillows had faces. They were like back in the day, those pillows that like came with expressions. I want to say that it was a spud, like a potato pillow or something. And I was like, Jalen, like, why don't we, you know, have have some some fun with our pillows? And she was like, okay. And so I was like, kiss your pillow. And so we kissed our pillow. And then I was like, show your pillow your shoulder. And you show your pillow the shoulder. And I was like, hug your pillow really tight. And I can't remember how far this went, but I definitely know that it wasn't like, hug your pillow really tight. It was like, hug your pillow really tight. There was a definite sexual connotation. Like we were having these sexual experiences with our pillows. And I thought it was fun. It was a fun game. And that was that. The next day, I remember Jalen at breakfast, you know, saying to her mom, like, yeah, last night we were up super late and then we had the pillows. We were playing with our pillows. And I was like, shut up. 
shut up, Jalen. Like I knew that what we did was not something that adults would be happy with. So I remember the feeling of her talking about it innocently and me already knowing that that was not an innocent activity, but I felt like I signaled her and then it worked out fine, but, and I moved on. So I went home thinking that the event was over, but unbeknownst to me, either one, the mom was very smart and picked up on what the daughter was putting down in the conversation or more than likely spoke to her later and said, like, can you tell me more about this pillows incident? So I guess Jalen had gone home and told her mom at some point um, this kind of conversation, this kind of activity that they were doing. And so the mom got really concerned that maybe that they shouldn't be doing that. So she had given me a call and said, I don't like it. I want you to talk to them and tell them that it's inappropriate. And I agreed with her um, because, you know, we've already went through this. But I also had to mention to her that it's also a curiosity stage in their life. So that's where that's, that activity is coming from. But I appreciate what she's saying. But it also made me feel a little uncomfortable because here's a parent sort of calling out my child and sort of saying that she has some kind of, I don't know, like, uh, in, like I said, inappropriate behavior. And where is she getting this from? Which is sort of reflective on us. Like, what kind of activity do we do in the home? And from that point on, I think my parents started to look at me as someone they had to watch out for in this way. Barbies. I have said this line several times before, um, so let's just dive into it more. When I was around seven years old or so, my Barbies were banned from being naked. Shannon absolutely loved Barbies. Actually, it started even younger than Barbies. It actually started with uh, Little People, Fisher Price, Little People. Fisher Price neighborhood is open for fun. Little people. She used to clutch them and hold them in her hand everywhere she went. And then about four or five, she switched over to Barbies. And she loved playing with Barbies all the time. But she had this obsession with taking the Barbies clothes off and putting them in bed together. So we have Barbie and we have Ken in bed together. And at some point I said, you can't take the Barbies clothes off all the time like that. Um, You have to keep the Barbies clothes on. Now, I was an avid Barbie player. I had a great imagination. My sister had a great imagination. We would create these storylines. Also, it's important to note, which actually when I think about where did I get the pillows thing from before, it could be from this. Growing up, I watched soap operas. I watched all my children. I would be in kindergarten stressed out that I couldn't get home in time because all my children came home, came on at 1 p.m. I'd be stressed out that I would miss my stories. Lauren, our oldest daughter, she had gone to school. And so she went to school in the afternoon. So it was just myself and Shannon at home. And that was all my children came on at one o'clock. So it's, um, you know, lunchtime making Shannon lunch. I put all my children on. And so, of course, now she's three years old, four years old, and she's gotten into it as well. And I guess that's probably where she got all of the ideas of relationships and um, the conversations that they had around relationships, possibly around sex. Back in those days, it wasn't the same kind of conversations that were allowed on TV that they have nowadays. But it doesn't take much to sort of put um, the whole picture together. And I'm sure Shannon at that time was able to put everything together and say, you know what? If they're doing it, then this is what my Barbie should be doing as well. Am I bad? 
when we went to our grandma's house, it was all my children time even there too. Like we were all Erica Kane fans, Erica Kane and Jeremy. What were their names again? Adam and Stuart, the twins, Haley, Tad. These were the people. These were the people that we grew up with. So we, as kids who grew up on soap operas, didn't play Barbies like we changed their names or changed their jobs. Like there was a storyline. There was a cohesive storyline. If you were married to somebody, you were married till you were not married. If you worked at the pet store, you worked at the motherfucking pet store. I know that all of our Barbies had all these dramatic storylines and they were like divorcing and, and, you know, seeing other people and getting new jobs and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, they had these romantic relationships that sometimes went beyond like, hi, honey, you're home. A lot of the stories naturally led to people's clothes coming off. And so we would have our Barbies in these, you know, storylines and in these activities and then something will be happening. We would call for dinner. And because I thought nothing of it, I would just drop them and then go upstairs. I think it was after the pillows incident that happened that my mom coming in the room and tidying up after us or just seeing what we were doing or just being in the room for some reason and seeing the naked Barbies had a shift in meaning for her. And no longer was it like innocent play or maybe them just in the middle of changing clothes, but she saw it as, you know, us or me acting out lewdly and inappropriately. See, my choice of words actually is vulgar. Like that is my choice of word. That's a vulgar behavior um, or inappropriate behavior. Mom, Shannon's being lewd again. So I remember that my Barbies were in the pool. We had like a, we had a lit, we had a Barbie room. Like we, it was a town, it was a lit town. So one of the Barbies had their own pool. And um, I think she was getting freaky with her partner in the pool area. My mom saw the two Barbies laying on top of each other in the pool. And she pulled me into the room and she said, what were these Barbies doing? And I think I was just like, oh, just, they're just going for a swim. Said, Why aren't they wearing any clothes? I was like, I mean, I think it was a really hot day. And she said, okay, well, there's swim trunks and they could be wearing swim trunks. And from now on, I don't want to see your Barbies naked. You can change their clothes, but do not play with your dolls while they have no clothes on. And that became a rule in my house. No naked Barbies. I'm actually really surprised mom didn't bring me up in the whole playing with Barbies naked thing because I pretty much know that the person who Shan predominantly played Barbies with was me. And I remember that pool scene just very vividly because I, I just remember as I was like, this feels a little bit more than what I'm good with. I know that when I was uncomfortable in those moments, like of playing Barbies, I don't think that I ever went to my parents to say like, uh, this happened and I don't know how I feel about it. Because again, like my, me and my sister, when we're playing Barbies, we're in a safe space together. And there was a sense of shame around what we were doing, but I didn't understand why. You just kind of had that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like maybe we're not supposed to be doing this. But I don't even think, if I'm being honest, that I even said to Shan in the moment. I don't think I corrected anything. I think it was just this internal thing inside me that I was processing to kind of be like, I don't know how I feel about this. But I never even communicated that to Shan because I think like a few weeks later, that was, or like maybe a couple of days later, like that was it for... Barbie fun time. When I played with the Barbies naked and when they were, I didn't necessarily mock 
you know, sex, because I didn't know what the activities of sex were. I just knew that when people were in an intimate relationship and they trusted each other, they took their clothes off and they experienced pleasure with one another. They experienced an intimate time that included their bodies. And while, you know, a seven-year-old mocking that activity can seem lewd to some people, I think it's actually kind of cool to understand the context for appropriate sexual contact, to mock the kinds of conversations that would lead to that contact, to um, play around and figure out like how does a healthy sex life fit into life? Because it is a natural part of life. And like I said, we were mocking life through our Barbie games, everything from getting fired to getting divorced, to arguments, to job and career changes. We were doing all of that. And sex wasn't the focal point, but it was a part of the storyline, just like it is in real life. So if you are going to allow me to play with Barbies and to play in this world and to create this universe, why would we decide that sex is the one thing that good Barbies don't do? And the last story I want to share is one called Sweet Baby Jesus. So growing up, I went to Catholic schools and the Catholic school that I went to for elementary school was called St. Isaac Jokes. Shout out to anybody who went to St. Isaac Jokes. And what was unique about our school is that we had a church on site. And this wasn't like a small church or chapel that you'd find in a hospital. Like it was a full blown church. Like there was funerals, there was weddings. Like this was a church church. And other schools used to be bused in to go to our church. So there was something cool about that because we were like the superior elementary Catholic school. But I think one of the cons of that is that the people who worked at the church, I don't know what they're called, priests and and clergymen and and church people, um, had a lot of involvement in our school because they were just on site all the time. So as a result, we had this course that's called Family Life, which I don't even know how to put that into other words. Essentially, you learned about the human body, sexuality, I guess. And you learned about family dynamics and you learned a little bit about self-development. So early on, maybe grade one, grade two, we had these family life courses, but we would often have people from the church come in to teach certain parts. And for whatever reason, when we got to the sex section, we had a nun come in and teach us that specific part. And I remember this nun, you know, and we'd never seen her before, but there was no familiarity. So it's already an uncomfortable brand new topic for the class, obviously testing people's maturity levels. And then we have this stranger come in who we all look at as like a super authority figure. And so you don't feel comfortable questioning. You don't feel comfortable being there. You don't feel comfortable, period. And she said, um, I just want everyone to be very clear because there could be rumors about what sex is in the schoolyard. But sex happens when a husband and a wife who love each other very much and God acknowledges and validates this love, go and hug each other very, very tightly for an extended period of time. So obviously everybody had questions after this, but nobody felt comfortable asking them. So they pretty much just left the room and then we were all left to our own devices. And I remember afterwards on recess, people trying to pick this apart and be like, what does that mean? Then how do you make babies? So where's the penis involved? Because at this time we knew that we had genitals. We had been flashing each other for goodness sake. So there was all this confusion around what it was, but it really 
put in place the idea that the school system knew less about sex than the peers did. So from that point going forward, sex education became a joke in our school. and It became something that you would almost tune out of because you realize that the real sex had happened when the bell rang and when you were at recess. I did not learn a single useful thing about sex from school. And I'm talking... I mean, let me rephrase because I then went to school to become a sexologist. So obviously that's not true. I mean, from the ages of kindergarten all the way up until high school, there was not one useful bit of information. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. But there was one lesson from Catholic school sex education that I did take heed to and that I did take in. And honestly, I wish with all my wishes that I didn't. And that lesson actually came from my teacher. Furthermore, a teacher that I had a crush on. So someone that I looked up to and that I valued and whose opinion deeply mattered to me. Mr. Aversano, shout out to you. So Mr. Aversano was teaching a family life class about masturbation, um, which they didn't call masturbation. They just called like touching yourself. I can't remember what the wording was, but essentially... Mr. Aversano was saying that if you touch yourself, then you are sinning. And people did feel comfortable. So they started to ask questions like, what do you mean? Like, why is it a sin? Why is it a bad thing? You're not interacting with anybody else. And, you know, it's your own body. Like, why is that bad? And I think that in the pressure to explain that concept, because you don't want to just say, because God said so, Mr. Aversano said, well, When you touch yourself and when you touch yourself in a sexual way, you are doing something that God doesn't want. So God won't look at you. So God doesn't see you. And then when you go out there in the world, you won't even know how to look for God anymore because you put yourself in the practice of removing God from your life. So a person who masturbates loses contact with God. That was the sum of the dialogue. I do recall, and, and, and I'm saying that because I wouldn't say Mr. Aversano, but I will recall her saying things about sex education. So was she older when she talked about it and how it didn't really explain things and it didn't talk about it, you know, in the way that she really understood. And um, it certainly wasn't something that the kids... It wasn't really answering the kids' questions. I remember fully alive, but I don't recall it being when going through those books, learning a lot about sex. I more so remember, like, I just have vivid memories of seeing a diagram of fallopian tubes. I don't, the first recollection I have of sex education was in the sixth grade where my teacher said, ask anything you want. And a lot of students started asking questions like, what's a 69er? What are blue balls? These are the first times I've ever heard these uh, these these terms come up. I remember because I started self-pleasuring pretty young, you know, it definitely in elementary school, that every time that I did it, I was very mindful afterwards that I had to go looking for God afterwards because I had lost sight of him when I did this particular act. And as I got older, I realized like, if there is a God, because I don't necessarily have a specific viewpoint on religion. I have a deep respect for the idea that there is a creator and I have a much deeper respect for the fact that I don't know a damn thing. I don't know a damn thing. So I don't not believe in anything, but I do know that I try to bring the concept of God 
into sex as an adult. And it's still hard for me to do that. But I believe because of all of the things I've talked about in terms of the benefits of orgasm, that the creator wants you to pleasure yourself, wants you to exist in pleasure, and wants you to take advantage of the health benefits that come from giving yourself that kind of intensive care and love. Because I do look at masturbation as a form of self-care and self-love. So I try to bring God in. So those are four formative stories that showed me that my sexuality and my desire for intimacy in various forms was an unhealthy part of who I am. And from age eight to 18, I lived in that truth. And every time that I did engage with my sexual self, I felt shame. Every time that I did engage in overt physicality, I felt shame. And that shift happened at age 19, which we can go back and tell the whole library story, but I think you know that part. I'm uncomfortable with it, don't get me wrong, (laughs) but I appreciate what Shannon is doing right now for all of the, the younger people out there because, and encouraging parents out there to talk to their kids from a very young age. They are curious, and I would definitely have done it a lot different. I have a clinical background, and so when I talked about sex, I talked about it in a clinical sense, and that's not what kids want to hear. They want to hear about the feelings, the emotions that go with it. They want to hear, they have a lot of questions and you should be able to answer them and they should be able to come to you with those questions. And um, I was not one of those approachable parents and I wish I was. Another set of interesting stories I can tell is from age 19 to 24, I was deeply in my purpose. I was obsessed with sex education. I was ravenous, probably in a way that I've never been ravenous about anything in my life. But at age 24 years old, I once again put this passion down. I once again stepped away from my purpose because of another kind of shame. And maybe in a future podcast, we'll tell those stories. Thank you all for tuning into this very special episode of the Lovers and Friends podcast. But wait, we've got more. For the first and limited time, Shan is launching limited edition merchandise to celebrate her origin story. And if you've been listening closely, when you see the merch, you'll understand. To get your hands on some hoodies, t-shirts, and more, hit up the link in the episode notes while you can. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating and leave a review on how you enjoyed this episode. And as always, make sure you continue these incredible conversations with your own lovers and friends. Lovers and friends. Lovers and Friends is executive produced by Shared Entertainment, Shamboodram and Lauren Morrison. Also produced by Stitcher's Jackie Sojiko, Two West Entertainment and Workhouse Media. Our mixing engineers are Brendan Burns and Marcus Hong. The Lovers and Friends theme song is produced by Sean Ross and performed by Jared Brady, who also does the scoring and sound design. Jasmine Henley-Brown is the executive producer at More Sauce, and this podcast is powered by More Sauce from Stitcher.